2007, November 14th. Today is Lecture 37, The Gas Giants, Jupiter and Saturn. All right. We've been talking mostly about the terrestrial planets. Terrestrial planets are kind of easy to talk about in many ways. I mean, not always the most hospitable places like Venus or, or Mars, and maybe nothing to breathe, but at least there's somewhere to stand. But now we're going to get into something completely different, worlds that are, do not resemble at all the planets we've just been looking at. And we'll start with the two largest planets in the solar system, the gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn. Key ideas today are as follows. We're going to be introducing Jupiter and Saturn, the largest planets in our solar system. These are examples of a class of planet called gas giants. Of all the planets we know of, not only counting our sun, but all the other stars that we found planets around, gas giants are the most common planet we currently know of. Now, this isn't to say there aren't more of other things, it's just what we know of. So the gas giants are actually very interesting to us. What we see as a gas giant surface are really cloud features. We're seeing the cloud tops. And there's two particular features of these that will be of interest to us today, the colored belts and zones and the strong cyclonic storms that cover these planets. Check my wiring here. Just a second. We're also going to look at the atmospheres and internal structures of these. In some extent, a gas giant is all atmosphere. So what we're going to see is that these are thick, very, very heavy hydrogen and helium atmospheres, something we haven't yet seen before. They radiate much more energy than they receive from the sun. We'll ask see what the, what the source of that energy is. Why is it they actually produce their own energy? What, that makes them a little different than the terrestrial planets. And finally, deep, deep in their interiors, we're going to find rock and ice cores down the center, sort of super Earth-sized things. But then we're also going to find something very surprising, very, very deep mantles consisting of metallic hydrogen. We'll say a little bit about what metallic hydrogen is and what the consequences of having those layers deep inside these gas giants is. Well, let's just take a quick at a glance as to where we are in the solar system. Everywhere we've talked about for the last few days resides deep in this inner zone here in the solar system. Whoops. Jupiter. This is interesting, I don't know why. Jupiter is in orbit at 5.2 astro astronomical units out for the sun. It takes almost 12 years to go runs around the sun. It's in a nearly circular orbit and barely tilted with respect to the plane of the solar system. Saturn, out here at 10 astronomical units. My graphics is not having fun today, is it? At 10 astronomical... Oh, I see. We've got a little bit of a projector problem here, don't we? We seem to be losing our red gun. Uh, Jupiter is actually this barely visible. Uh, hang on a second. Let's, let me bounce ahead just a wee bit. Uh, we're losing some colors here. Hang on a second. Let me uh, let me try to set up the switch projectors here. Yeah, none of these is going to work terribly well. We'll just have to keep tr keep trucking then. Saturn is out at nine and a half astronomical units. At that distance, Kepler's laws tell us it takes us nearly 30 years to complete one circle around the sun. So everything we've been talking about beforehand fits very neatly within one and a half AUs here within the orbit of Mars. Now we're making a big jump in the size of the solar system. Again, the orbit is very nearly circular and only tilted a little bit, about two and a half degrees with respect to the plane of the ecliptic. The planets themselves, well, when you come right down to it, they're just plain big. Okay, here's Jupiter here, shown in Jupiter and Saturn, and the Earth, shown to scale. Jupiter is 318 times the mass of the Earth and about 11.2 Earth radii across in the equatorial direction. Saturn is about 95 times the mass of the Earth and a little, over nine, a little under 
the radius of the Earth, again, in the equatorial direction. And again, just for scale, this is how big the Earth is compared to these gas giant planets. They really do earn their name, the gas giants. We know a great deal about them, of course. Both Jupiter and Saturn are bright planets visible to the naked eye. They've been observed pretty much since telescopes were turned on the sky. But most of what I'm going to be talking about today comes from spacecraft visits that have occurred over the last couple of decades. There have been a series of flybys of Jupiter, for, in particular, and also Saturn, but Jupiter has had four, I'm sorry, six spacecraft fly by over the last uh, 30 years. The Pioneer 10 and 11 spacecraft from the mid-70s, followed by Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, which is really the two missions where we got most of our information about all of the outer gas planets. Ulysses' mission, which was actually on its way to the sun, but in order to bleed off enough energy from it to drop it over the pole of the sun, they had to send it up to Jupiter first and use Jupiter's immense gravity to do a reverse slingshot to throw it into the center of the solar system. And finally, the Cassini mission, bound for Saturn, used a slingshot to get it out to Saturn, but on its way past Jupiter gave us a number of beautiful pictures. There's also been one orbiter put into orbit around the planet Jupiter, the Galileo spacecraft, which arrived in December of 95, and stayed in orbit for eight years when it was finally crashed down into the planet at the very end of its lifetime. They simply fired the last of the fuel off and let it burn up in the atmosphere and learn enough about stuff as you're falling into the atmosphere. The Galileo orbiter also carried a probe on board that it dropped into Jupiter's atmosphere with a gas analyzer and it was able to survive parachuting a little bit of a ways into the cloud tops and returning most of the information we have about actual direct measurement of the chemical composition of Jupiter's atmosphere. Saturn has also been the subject of flybys, but only three. The Pioneer 11 spacecraft went zipping by in September of 1979, followed by Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 in the early 80s. I particularly remember these missions here. Pioneer 11, I thought, was kind of a disappointment. It didn't have a very good camera on it. It only had a photocell, and the spacecraft spun, and it would kind of just scan it like a Xerox machine trying to make an image, and it doesn't do a very good job. That, that Pioneer, however, was really exciting that it even made it to Saturn and survived. This is just when I was about to enter college. However, when I got to college at Caltech, Caltech's Jet Propulsion Laboratory was running both the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 missions. And so I was, this, these are respectively my sophomore and summer between uh, sophomore and junior years at Caltech when the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft made their spectacular flybys of Saturn. And they had monitors set up all over campus looking at the live data feeds coming down from the spacecraft. So I particularly remember, you know, long night physics assignment, wandering back to, to hand in to find my TA to give my homework in and go home to my dorm and crash. And coming across a room which no one was in, it's like a big old TV, of course, this is, this is 19, 1981, and there's this marvelous picture of Saturn, the Saturn looking back after the spacecraft has passed. And it's one of the few times in my life in which being dead tired, I simply forgot how tired I was. It was such a stunning picture. I just sat there for, for hours afterwards watching these pictures come down. Of course, what we now know about Saturn, a lot of the data we're going to see over the next few lectures on the Saturn system comes from this marvelous machine shown here in a computer graphic, the Cassini orbiter. It was launched in 1997 and it's been in space now for 10 years. It arrived in, uh, in July of 2004, so it was a seven-year voyage out to Saturn fired its engines and dropped into orbit and has now been make, not only making pictures of the, of the planets, the rings, and all the moons around the Saturn system,
but it also carried the Huygens Titan probe, which made a soft landing on the moon Titan in January of 2005. And we're going to see some more of this next week when we talk about the giant moon systems of Jupiter and Saturn and the ring systems. But Cassini is just an amazing mission. It's just really just, um, just stunning pictures have been coming out of it. So what are we looking, what are we talking about here? Well, these planets are very different than what we've seen before. Up to now, we've had solid surfaces to stand upon. We've had cratered surfaces. We can learn something about the age of the surface by looking at surface topology. Now, there's nowhere to stand. We're looking at basically gas giants. These are planets that are pretty much have no solid surface. They're just gas and super compressed materials all the way down, once you get down past the atmosphere. They have extremely deep, very, very heavy atmospheres composed primarily of hydrogen and helium riding on top of rock and ice cores. But you shouldn't think of these things as being kind of like the rock and ice core is kind of being like an Earth type of planet, and there's kind of an atmosphere on top of it. The density of all the weight of all that hydrogen and helium crushing down on those rock and ice cores is really such the only way you can tell when you go from the gas parts to the rock and ice parts is the composition around you has changed. The density is absolutely crushing. It, there's nothing to stand on. There's no strong, sudden contrast and density that says, oh, I've got a surface. Like in this room, there's a contrast and density of a part in 10,000 between air and ground. That's how I can tell, gee, I'm standing on the ground, I'm, I'm up here in the air. Inside of Jupiter, there's really no such density contrast when you pass from the, from the gas part to the rock and ice part. It's just like, I got a lot of hydrogen around me. Okay, now I got a lot of rock and ice around me, but you never, don't really see any difference there. So you can't think of these things as having deep surfaces. These are very rapidly rotating planets. Down in the inner part of the solar system, a typical rotation speed, unless there's a tidal effect going on, like at Mercury, or something wacky going on, like at Venus, is typically about 24 hours in the inner solar system. The Earth is 24 hours, Mars is just a shade over 24. The Jovian planets are rotating really fast. The rotation periods are about 10 hours for both Jupiter and for Saturn. Now, you might ask, how do you measure the rotation of something if you don't have a surface reference? After all, we can tell how fast the Earth rotates because we can watch our favorite continent go by. You can't use the cloud tops because there's winds going every which way. It's like trying to judge the rotation of the Earth by watching storm patterns on the Earth. It's not going to give you a very good number. In round numbers, it'll be okay, but if you measure by looking at this big red spot or this white spot or maybe some little fluff in the bands, you're going to get different numbers. So what's the actual speed at which the interior of the planet's rotating? Well, that's going to turn out to be measured using their magnetic fields. And so what you really measure when you measure the rotation of a Jovian planet, you're measuring the rotation rate of its gigantic magnetic fields. And the way you measure the rotation rate of a magnetic field is you listen to it at radio wavelengths, and it produces a radio modulation. And that radio modulation is how you judge that it's taking 10 hours or so to go around once. The other thing about these planets is they're very fast rotators, right? So they're 10 hours to go all the way around. These things are huge, which means they're moving really fast. And so just like taking a water balloon and spinning it up, it's going to stretch out at the equator and flatten a little bit at the poles. So if you look at these pictures, and it's kind of, kind of hard to tell here, especially since our projector's kind of deciding to screw up today. Um, Jupiter and Saturn are actually oblate. They're flattened at the poles and bulging out at the equator. So much so that Jupiter is 6.5% flatter along the poles than it is along the equator, and Saturn is a whole 10%. So if the pictures every now and then it look like, gee, it looks like someone's taking the planet and squashed it a little bit, 
That's not a distortion. That really is the shape of the planet. They really are flattened and oblate. And again, it's because of this very, very rapid rotation. It's just sort of a bulging at the poles, uh, bulging at the equator and squashed down at the poles. Now, the atmospheres of these things, the composition of these atmospheres is very different than anything we've seen in the solar system thus far. Now, just I'll throw some heavy numbers at you. The main, the main point here is the primary constituents of both Jupiter and Saturn are hydrogen, primarily in the form of molecular hydrogen, two hydrogen atoms stuck together into a two-atom molecule, and helium. Helium, of course, is an ideal gas. It doesn't form molecules with anything. But the primary constituency, in fact, if you do the math here, for Jupiter, 86% hydrogen and 14% helium kind of adds up to 100%. It's because I've dropped a couple decimal places and done a little aggressive rounding here. But it really is like 99% and change is hydrogen and helium. And then the rest is things like methane, CH4, water vapor, H2O, and ammonia, NH3. Over here on Saturn, there's some funny stuff going on. There's a lot more hydrogen than helium in the atmosphere. What you're seeing here is an effect of something called fractionation. Some of the helium is actually probably rained out and sunk deeper in the atmosphere. What we're talking about here is the surface composition, what we can actually measure. What's going on in the deep interior kind of shrug a little bit, although we have some clues from the surface composition. And again, it adds up to about 100% of hydrogen and helium on the surface, less a little bit, and that little bit is again the same, same suspects. Methane, water, and hydrogen. Now this hydrogen, mostly hydrogen, a bit of helium, and then little percentages of other stuff, like everything else on the, on the periodic table, is almost exactly the composition of the sun. So if you wanted to give it a nutshell, what is the composition of Jupiter and Saturn? The answer is it has the same composition as the sun to a first approximation. Mostly hydrogen, helium, and just a fraction of a percent of other stuff. Now the other thing to notice about this composition list is not so much what's here as what's missing. When we looked at the atmospheres of the terrestrial planets, what did we see? We saw carbon dioxide. We saw nitrogen, N2. On the Earth, we saw oxygen. And we saw water, of course. Well, the only thing in common with the terrestrial planet atmospheres and the Jovian gas giant atmospheres is water. That's because we're dealing with a very different kind of atmosphere. This is what's known as a reducing atmosphere. What a reducing atmosphere is, is, a, is an atmosphere where the chemistry is dominated by the chemistry of hydrogen. The terrestrial planets, by comparison, have what are called oxidizing atmospheres. The atmospheres of the terrestrial planets are dominated by chemistry involving oxygen. So as a consequence, we take the topmost abundant elements, hydrogen, helium, Okay, well, you only find hydrogen and helium on the gas giants because the terrestrial planets are too small and too warm to hold on to hydrogen and helium. Then you take the next most abundant elements, carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen. What are the various chemical combinations I can do? Well, if I have a lot of oxygen around, carbon tends to be in carbon dioxide. Water, well, it's always water. Nitrogen doesn't tend to want to form nitrous oxides. It tends to want to form nitrogen-nitrogen compounds. Now, you do get little traces of methane, little traces of ammonia, but those come from biological processes on the terrestrial planets. Anaerobic chemistry. Hmm, chemistry in the absence of oxygen. Whereas on Jupiter, hydrogen is the most abundant element with a bullet. 
And so as a consequence, when there's any carbon around, you're more likely to form carbon-hydrogen compounds, like methane, the simplest one is carbon plus four hydrogen atoms. When you have any nitrogen around, you're much more likely to have chemical reactions with hydrogen than with another nitrogen. And so you're more likely to form ammonia, NH3. Not surprisingly, if you had any oxygen around, it also gets grabbed by hydrogen, and you get a lot of water. So water is the only common denominator between the terrestrial planets and the Jovian planets. Once you get out into the Jovians, the gas giants like Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, hydrogen and helium for the most part dominate, and then the chemistry is reduction chemistry. We're in the realm of hydrogen chemistry. Now what do we see when we look at these planets? Well, the first thing we see is, first of all, they don't have a surface to look at, so what we're looking at is the tops of the clouds. We're looking as far as I can see into those cloud layers on the planet, just in the same way if you walk out on a cloudy day, you only see just the outside skin of the clouds on the Earth, like, like say, for example, today. What are the clouds made of here? Well, we've already said that the atmospheres are primarily hydrogen and helium, but hydrogen and helium do not freeze at the kind of temperatures. They don't form liquid droplets at the kinds of temperatures and pressures we see in the upper atmospheres of the Jovians. So we have to seek in the other compounds that make up the atmosphere for these particles. And what we find is, just like on Earth, where the, on Earth, water clouds are mostly things, for example, like water, little crystals of water, or they're water vapor droplets that have condensed. Or, for example, on Venus, the, the cloud droplets and the cloud layers of Venus are, are, hydrogen, are sulfuric acid. Here, what we're going to find are crystals and droplets of hydrogen compounds namely ammonia, methane, and of course, water ices, because wa water is, after all, a hydrogen-oxygen compound. The average temperature we're talking about in these regions is between 10, uh, 100 and 140 degrees Kelvin. Those are the kinds of temperatures you need where methane and ammonia, which are really noxious gases here on the Earth, actually begin to freeze out. Okay. Now these are, obviously, I just had to do a homework problem where I talked about pure methane ice is 30 degrees Kelvin, but in fact, we're in somewhat higher pressures here, so it's somewhat higher temperatures for freezing. The atmosphere that we do see, for example, on Jupiter is actually not all of a piece, but actually shows latitudinal bands. We actually see it divided into very, very dark belts. So we have the dark regions, sort of think of a dark belt, and the white regions, the bright stuff, is called the bright zones. In between these bright dark belts and bright zones, the different wind shear patterns give rise to cyclonic storms, much in the same way that the various temperate and tropical zones that we see on the Earth's atmosphere give rise to clockwise and counterclockwise rotating cyclones. So we get both cyclonic and so-called anti-cyclonic storms. Some of these storms are extremely long-lasting. Some of them, for example, like the Great Red Spot, have been observed for at least 400 years. So the basic thing we're looking at is whenever we're looking at these gas giants, we're looking at the cloud tops. There's no surface here, despite the fact those cloud tops often are very richly featured. So here's a picture of Jupiter. Now you can sort of see this effect of flattening. It is flatter along the poles and on the equator. The dark belts are these very, very prominent latitudinal bands. They're sort of high temperate regions and tropical regions, just like on the Earth. They're the dark regions or the belts. In between the belts, are the bright zones, as they're called. They're much, much shinier ices in the, in the clouds, and as we're going to see, they're actually higher regions, which are going to be much more reflective of sunlight. 
The less reflective materials in this funny brown stuff is due to a lot of complex organics in this really hydrogen-rich soup. We also see these little round spots. These round spots are these cyclonic storms that kind of live either directly inside of a bright zone or belt or sort of form here on the interface between them where the heavy winds from one to the other are causing extremely rapid wind shear. And if you've got a rapid wind shear, of course, you're going one way on the bottom, the other way on the top, and you immediately set up a circulation pattern. So dark belts, bright zones, and in between are these long-lasting, prominent cyclonic storms. Well, let's just sort of take that atmosphere and kind of unwrap it here for a second. And again, showing the belts and zones. Why are they different? Why are there contrasts between belts and zones? In Jupiter, the reason has to do with differences in the temperature and the depth of the layer that we're looking into. The belts are high-pressure regions. They're high-pressure zones. They're for much higher temperature. Because they're warmer, we actually have melted off all the really high ice-thin clouds, and you're able to see into the deeper, warmer regions of the lower atmosphere, at least that part of the lower-ish parts of the, of the upper atmosphere. The colors that we're seeing are due to very, very complex organic compounds, and in fact, a lot of the funny oranges and browns are probably polysulfides. And we're not 100% sure exactly, because it's, it's really hard to reproduce these conditions on Earth, but the basic spectral properties and the one or two compounds that people have been able to build by reducing chemistry, it's basically really funky, nasty sulfur compounds with hydrogen, so-called polysulfides. The bright zones that we see are actually low-pressure, colder regions. Because they're cold, you get very, very high clouds of ice crystals, primarily ice crystals of ammonia and methane ices as well as water ice. Ices are shiny. And as a consequence, they reflect sunlight off the very upper layers and basically block, so making them very bright. And then because they're a high layer, they block our view of the deeper layers below. If I could somehow warm up the entire outer layers of Jupiter and evaporate all those high clouds, Jupiter would basically look like a kind of mottled orange-brown ball. But because in these regions I've got these rising gas, which is coming up, getting very high, low density, and very, very cold, low pressure stuff, I'm actually going to get these very high ice clouds blocking my view from below. So the belts, again, to sort of review, they're high pressure zones, they're high temperature, we're viewing deep in the planet, these are downwelling regions, the zones are upwelling regions. So if we just sort of do this from the side, what we're getting is, again, this sort of convection motion, we're getting vertical motions of, of warm stuff rising, cold air, cold stuff falling, as the cold stuff falls, it actually drops down into these deeper regions here. The cold air always wants to fall down. It's opening up a view into the lower, warmer regions, which form the belts. The zones are warm material from below rising up, but when it hits the upper layers, it cools off very rapidly in the low pressure zone, and we get bright, shiny ices. So if you could look at it and slice into Jupiter from the side, you would find that the, zo the zones are actually higher than the belts. So it's a very, very active weather systems on these planets. There's an awful lot going on in the, in the atmosphere of Jupiter, and certainly analogous processes go on in Saturn, but because Saturn is about twice as far away from the sun, it gets a little less sunlight, it's colder, it's a much more muted weather. A little movie playing over here in the corner shows you what these storms look like. These are immense storm systems running across the surface of this planet. 
the winds at the bound, so boat, belt zone boundaries in Jupiter can have really prodigious winds. Typical wind speeds in here in the belt zone boundaries, especially down along the equator in the temperate zones, is upwards of 400 kilometers per hour sustained winds. And they tend to blow either east to west or west to east. In fact, you can see that. You can see there's here in the bright, uh, the bright zone here is blowing here in this easterly direction. And the belt is blowing in the opposite direction. So in the in-between zones, you get these extremely strong wind shears, and you can generate these immense cyclonic storms. Some of these cyclonic storms, like the Great Red Spot, have persisted for centuries, literally. To give you an idea of the scale of some of these storms, here's a picture of the Great Red Spot, and this beautiful picture from the Voyager 2 spacecraft, shown with a scale model of the Earth superimposed on it to size, so imagine a 400-year hurricane with five to 600 kilometer per hour sustained winds bigger than the entire planet Earth. That's the scale of the weather that we get on the planet Jupiter. And like I said, people have been seeing the great red spot. The very first person to have seen it was Galileo Galilei in 1610. And it's been seen consistently for nearly 400 years. And this Arrows here show you what the circulation patterns look like in here. We get strong winds to the west east above, east to west, I'm sorry, west to east below. Yeah, I can't see it. So you get the strong wind shear and you get a circulating pattern here. It's a cyclonic storm. Actually, in this particular case, it's anti-cyclonic. So that's Jupiter. Very, very active atmosphere, very, very fast winds, division into belts and zones, very, very rich hydrogen chemistry, very, very colorful world. What about Saturn? Well, Saturn is a fairly similar planet in many ways. It's a gas giant as well as we've seen its composition, but it's a smaller planet. The atmosphere is also divided into these dark bands and light zones. But as you can see from this picture in the upper right-hand corner from the Cassini spacecraft, these colors are much, much more muted. And the reason for that is because Saturn is further from the sun than Jupiter, so it's colder in the upper atmosphere. You get a lot more ices in the upper atmosphere, and so you have to now view these belts and zones through a thin haze layer that covers nearly the entire planet. So the other thing that you get is because you're further from the sun and there's less internal heat on Saturn, is you don't have quite as much heat in the upper part of the atmosphere. The other side of that, in addition to being able to have more high, thin sort of methane and ammonia and water vapor cirrus clouds blocking your view of the planet, is it also a lot of the rich chemistry that made those colorful polyhydropolysulfides get shut down at cold temperatures. So you don't get as rich a chemistry. You still get some, but again, it's very much more muted, more subtle in many ways. Now the difference, however, is that the wind speeds on, on Saturn are just amazing. The highest winds that have been ever clocked anywhere in the solar system is 1,800 kilometers per hour Inside, inside storm systems in the planet Saturn. And some of those are sustained wind. We also see cyclonic storms, but there are fewer of them than we see on Jupiter. They don't seem to be as sustained. There are whole storms that have come or gone over the course of months, whereas we've seen persistent cyclonic storms for centuries in Jupiter. There is no similar analog, for example, to the red spot on Saturn. You know, the gigantic, multi-century, you know, terrestrial planet-sized hurricane cyclone storm of the red spot is unique to Jupiter. There are no such similar long-lasting storms anywhere else in the solar system. But occasionally you get very, very powerful storms. Here's an example of some of these 
persistent. Oh, <laughs> great. Because we're losing the red gun, the false color coding on this picture is, you guessed it, red. There's supposed to be a really cool storm right here on this picture. Uh, I guess I could turn my laptop and say, see, there's a red spot right there. Um, well, at least you can see the ba you can, okay. At least you can see the belts and zones. In order to see them, you have to basically suck the images into a computer and start playing a bunch of Photoshop games with it to basically amp the contrast up. And you do still it does look superficial, except for the rings out here. You do see this sort of superficial appearance. Oh, that looks better. Should have moved the laptop again the other time. Um, now you can start to say, oh yeah, there it is. Oh, I'm moving my laptop actually unstuck it. Great, cool. Okay, you can see this sort of funny little cyclonic storm which is formed here. The shape of this thing is often referred to as the dragon storm because it had this sort of Chinese dragon shape to it for a short while. It came and went over the course of a couple of months. But again, dark belts, bright zones, very similar to what we see on Jupiter but muted. Now, there's another thing about the, the gas giants here, certainly Jupiter and Saturn, that's really unique, or at least certainly a little surprising at first, and when you thought about it a bit, you went, oh, yeah, of course, it's got to be that way. These are gas bags. These are not solid rocks. They're gas bags. And they're held up against their own heavy, immense self-gravity by the force of the gas pressure holding them up. And they maintain only a bare equilibrium. Basically, the gas pressure is just sufficient to hold off gravity, but they're hot, and space is cold. So some of the heat leaks out as radiation because, remember Kirchhoff's first law, any hot, hot solid or hot dense gas or liquid radiates as a black body. If you're radiating, you're losing energy, you're cooling off. So this energy is going to come out at infrared wavelengths. So if I look at Jupiter, what I see with my eye or when I take a picture through a visible light camera is I'm seeing sunlight bouncing off the outer, surf, the outer tops of the clouds. But if instead of looking with my eye, I looked in the infrared. I got a heat camera, like the ones you use to look at buildings and see where the heat's leaking out in, the, in this, in this wintertime. What you would see is that the bright zones, the dark zones, no, dark belts. Yeah, let's get it straight, Rick. The dark belts all of a sudden are bright because you're seeing into the hot inner layers. Those hot inner layers are letting the heat from the inside of the planet leak out. So we can measure that heat energy at infrared wavelengths. In fact, Jupiter and Saturn are really bright at about 8 microns of wavelength in the infrared. We add up all that energy and we get a real surprise. In the case of Jupiter, it's emitting two and a half times more energy than it receives from sunlight. Remember, these things are out at five, Jupiter's out at five astronomical units, Saturn's out at 10. Brightness of objects goes, brightness goes down like one over distance squared. So at the distance of Jupiter, it's getting 125th the sunlight at Earth. Saturn's receiving, because it's almost 10 AUs, 1/100th the sunlight here on Earth. It's like deep twilight on Saturn. So there's not much sunlight there, but there's a lot of internal energy in these planets. And the reason is because these gas bags are slowly contracting under their own weight. It's a process called gravitational contraction. This gravitational contraction actually releases gravitational energy from the gravity fields of the planets themselves and leads to a source of heating. It's often what's referred to as the Kelvin-Helmholtz mechanism, for those of you who, who like putting names on things. Basically, what it comes down to is these planets are self-compression heating, and that compression heating is enough 
that the compression heating is between is about two and a half times greater than the sunlight you're, than the heat you're getting from the sun. In fact, Saturn is getting a lot more energy out, even though it's a smaller planet. It's this internal energy which is why these things have such crazy weather. Okay, why is it you're getting winds of 400 kilometers an hour, 1800 kilometers an hour up on Saturn? Right? There's not enough sunlight to power that. On Earth, our weather is powered by sunlight, by the interchange of energy between oceans and continents and air. But we're way far away from the sun now. So where's the energy coming from? And the answer, the energy is coming from within. It's coming from internal energy. So these things power their own weather. What's that source of power? It's gravitational contraction. This is the same power source that stars tap just before they tap nuclear energy to become full-fledged stars. Gravitational contraction energy is really important throughout the universe. And here's our first place where we find it, but on a planet, one of these gas giants. It also means that this gives us some interesting properties of these gas giants, which is going to be now interesting to carry out when we go looking at gas giants around other stars. It means they're going to be self-luminous. They're the first planets we're probably going to get pictures of around other stars, are going to be the gas giants, because they're sources of light. But they're not going to be visible light pictures. They're going to be infrared pictures when they finally come. So things like the Large Binocular Telescope Interferometry Modes, one of the goals there is ultimately to take a picture of Jupiter-like planets around nearby stars. So this is Jupiter over here in the infrared. This is a similar picture. This is kind of a, this is the best picture they've got on the Cassini website. It's a photo montage of a visible light picture overlaid on one of the infrared radiometer pictures. And again, you get the same sort of picture here. If you looked at Jupiter and Saturn with infrared eyes, they'd be glowing dull red, dull infrared in this particular case. They actually glow. They're self-luminous. They give out more energy than they receive from the sun. So what does it look like inside these planets? What if I could just sort of take in there and slice into these things like a gigantic cake and say, what's going on deep in the interior of the, of, of the Jovian planets? Well, what I would find, again, is they don't have a solid surface. They're atmosphere all the way down. What I find in Jupiter, and you can see it's a little bit flattened, it's, you know, six, six and a half percent. Here's the size of the Earth for comparison here in scale. What I would find is the outer cloud tops are just the barest skin on top of the, on top of the atmosphere of this planet. When I get below the cloud tops, the composition becomes primarily molecular hydrogen, the H2 molecule. As I go deeper and deeper inside the planet, I have the weight of all that stuff on top of me and the immense gravity of something 318 times the mass of the Earth. That compression very quickly rises to pressures of like 4 million atmospheres. That's an almost unimaginable pressure. We can barely achieve it with the heaviest diamond presses here on Earth, and that only for a few fractions of a second can we achieve that kind of pressure in these fast diamond anvils. But in that very high pressure, hydrogen does something really, really weird. It starts acting like a metal. And you say, oh, no, wait a minute, hydrogen's a gas, right? You know, boom, Hindenburg, all that kind of stuff. How can a gas act like a metal? Well, the answer turns out to be, look at where hydrogen is up here on the periodic table of the elements, right? It's sitting up on top of the upper left-hand column. Look what's underneath it. Lithium, sodium, potassium, rubidium, cesium, and this funky stuff, radioactive stuff called francium. Those are all metals. Hydrogen wants to be a metal, but at typical terrestrial and actually at typical astrophysical conditions, it's a gas. It's too low pressure. It's just a free gas. We're all bopping around as a bunch of free atoms or maybe combined into the hydrogen molecule. 
But if you put hydrogen under enough pressure so that you actually begin to make it a pressure solid, or actually, a, in this case, it's a pressure liquid, it actually acts like a metallic liquid. Not a metallic solid, not like a chunk of steel, but a metallic liquid like, oh, mercury is a good example of a metallic liquid. When you get down deeper, you eventually hit this core of rock and ice that's about 10 to 15 times the mass of the Earth. But because it's under such huge compression, it's barely bigger in size and radius than the Earth itself. This tells you this stuff has been compressed to extremely high densities. Right? I'm packing 10 or 15 times the Earth mass into the same size ball as the Earth. So whereas the Earth has a typical density of about you know, 3 grams per cc, 3.5 grams per cc, this stuff is up around 30 to 50 grams per cc of pressure. Now, we don't know for sure. That's why there's a big range here because it's really hard to know if there is a core there at all. This is the best size people have for the core. Now, one of the nifty things about this metallic hydrogen is it's liquid metallic hydrogen. Hey, we've encountered liquid metals before. Liquid iron and, and nickel down in the center of the earth. What happens? Hot bottom, cool top, you get convection currents. So what's going to happen here? Exactly the same thing. Rapidly rotating planet, convection currents, in a metallic liquid, which is highly electrically conductive, can you say dynamo? It generates a gigantic magnetic field. In fact, it's got the biggest magnetic field in the entire solar system. So the massive magnetic fields really are anchored down in the deep interior, down on these liquid metallic hydrogen mantles. This is crazy stuff. But when you got a lot of mass and you got a lot of compression, you get some crazy states of matter. Saturn is not too different. Okay, now what you can see in this picture, I guess from the back will be easier to see because you're not foreshortened here, the flattening of Saturn is pretty profound. It's a very rapid rotator. It's a lower mass planet. We're now 95 instead of 318 times the mass of the Earth. It too has a rock ice core expected to be around 10 to 12 times the mass of the Earth. Now, some of you may say, well, this is ice. How come it's ice? Does that mean it's cold? No, it's under high compression. Remember how you get something called compression freezing. You can actually have ices still be ice at extremely high temperatures under very high compression. So you get a core that's smaller than the Earth, but 10 or 12 times its mass, same deal. Sort of like a hard kernel in the middle of these gas giant planets. There isn't as much mass on Saturn. The gravity isn't as strong. The pressure doesn't really rise to the point that you form liquid metallic hydrogen until you get fairly deep inside. So as a consequence, most of the atmosphere is actually molecular hydrogen. Only the inner parts actually get pushed over the edge into the metallic hydrogen zone. Not surprisingly, this means that you will have a weaker dynamo, and therefore you expect, and in fact we do find, a somewhat weaker magnetic field around Saturn. But still is big enough to be able to form this metallic hydrogen region underneath these gigantic molecular hydrogen mantles. So a common feature of both of these planets, deep, deep, deep hydrogen atmospheres on top of a rock and ice core. The high pressures inside of these rise above five million atmos 4 million atmospheres and can actually force hydrogen into this liquid metallic form. And in those liquid metallic regions, we get very strong magnetic fields. There we go. So the circulating currents deep inside the interior liquid metallic hydrogen mantles of Jupiter and Saturn generate powerful magnetic fields. In fact, Jupiter is the all-time winner in the planetary magnetic field sweepstakes. It's the strongest magnetic field in the solar system.
Because this magnetic field is anchored deep inside on this liquid metallic um, layer, it co-rotates with the planet. And so this co-rotation, as it emerges into the upper atmosphere, is what gives rise to this rotationally modulated radio radiation that comes from, these, from both of these planets. So the way we measure the rotation rates of Jupiter and Saturn, and by extension Uranus and Neptune, is we watch the modulation of radio signals from them being generated by these rapidly rotating magnetic fields. And this is how we measure the rotation rates of the gas giant planets. In fact, the fast rotation on Jupiter is so fast, it generates a tremendous amount of radio radiation. When the very first radio telescopes were built, just after World War II, the very first thing that was seen in the sky was not the sun, it was Jupiter. Jupiter is actually the brightest thing in the solar system at radio wavelengths, not the sun. And it's all due to the fact you've got these rapidly rotating magnetic fields. So let's look at, just at the end here, some detailed differences between Jupiter and Saturn. They're very similar, but they're very different in important ways. Saturn, for one, is very much less dense than Jupiter. In fact, its average density is 0.7 grams per cc. That's less than the density of water. It's the lowest density object in the solar system of any appreciable size. You have to get down to like, you know, ice ball, rock size type of things before you get to lower densities. It's also more rotationally flattened because of this lower density. When you spin it up, it flattens out a lot more at the 10 hour rotation rate. And again, that's another clue to its low density was the amount of flattening that we saw. It also, again, as I've said before in, in review, it has a smaller metallic hydrogen mantle because it's got less gravity and it's lowered overall internal pressure. So we don't get as big a magnetic field. And there's also less surface helium. And this is a real mystery. It's actually a quarter the surface helium abundance of Jupiter. And the possibility is, in fact, that the helium has actually gotten into a state where it's begun to rain out as liquid helium into the deep interior. So there's some really strange things that begin to happen to gases and materials when you put them under pressure. People always act strange under pressure. Gases act strange under pressure. And so it too it is with helium actually leads to some very, very interesting physics. The gas giants are really interesting, but tomorrow we're going to see the two other giants, plants in the solar system, the ice giants, Uranus and Neptune.